Cody, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm so grateful for you. I've watched your journey unfold. I think episode 135 is when we first recorded over Zoom. I'm, I'm looking at it last night and it's like a blurry 480p, you know, and now we got this nice studio. We got this camera. We've really upgraded ourselves here. I know what happened to us. <laughs> we lost all the amateur hour. Yeah, it's cool though, watching your rise. And I figured a good place to start this conversation would be with your bio because you have something really interesting in it, which is like, we'll, we'll go through it. It's called founder, contrarian thinker, owning owner of boring businesses, investor in small business technology, newsletter to 200,000. Congrats on that, by the way. And this is my bio, not my tombstone. I hope it changes. I thought that part was so interesting. Oh, thanks. Well, you know, I think... The, the the infamous Twitter bio, bio can be many things. But um, what I've realized is um, that the most interesting part of life to me is that we get to keep sort of stacking these experiences. And the only reason that maybe I'm semi-interesting to people on the internet is because my experiences are varied and a bit odd. And so, you know, if you can compare an investigative journalist, which I used to be, to a cannabis investor, which I used to be, to a private equity investor than I am now, I'm probably not top 10. I'm definitely not top 10 in any of those three things. But when you compound all of them, uh, I might be. And so Mm. that part's kind of interesting. And I hope that I keep adding those to it. In fact, of late, I was actually talking to our mutual friend, Sam Parr, about this. I'm a little annoyed with myself because I've been running these businesses and working a lot on contrarian thinking and building it up. And I haven't had any of those really asymmetric, weird experiences lately. And so I, I want to I add to that repertoire. Well, what is an asymmetric, weird experience for you? Um, you know, well, when I first started being an investigative journalist, I was living along the U.S.-Mexico border. And I just went down there and started talking to people about the maquiladoras, the factories that they were working in, and writing stories about, you know, violence against women. Carmelita. Yeah, exactly. I From our first episode. Last time. Um, and so I haven't done anything like that of late, whether it's, you know, m- many people do it, a hard Iron Man or, you know, something to that degree. And so I'm, I'm going to add that in for the next six months, something that is nothing to do with writing a newsletter every week to 200,000 people. <laughs> well, it's pretty impressive. But well, like, so how do you go about deciding the next thing, your next challenge or the next interesting thing that you'd like to do in life? Usually I stumble upon it. We were just in the hallway with a, a young man who has a business that is photo booths uh, that I think you're referring to. Zach Pograb. Well. There yeah. you go. And, uh, and I love that because what we try to do is make starting businesses, buying businesses, running businesses accessible. You know, I believe everybody can be an owner in some way, shape, or form. And once you've had a touch of ownership, I think the perfect visual of what happens that's different is – you know, you, walk, you look at the scooters on the street, right? Mm-hmm. The lime scooters and the bird scooters. And what do you notice? They're beat up, right? They're like kicked on the ground. They're all scratched up. They don't last for very long. And then you think about the bike that you own or maybe the scooter that you own or the car that you own. People inherently treat it very differently. Why? Because one's rented and one's owned. One's somebody else's and one's yours. It's the law of the commons is what they call it. And so, or the tragedy of the commons. That which is, you know, not seen as owned by anybody is treated poorly by everybody. And so um, the idea is that we do these crazy things that help people realize they can all be an owner. And so, you know, when I was talking to him, I was thinking, gosh, what could we do to show that photo booths are not that hard to actually start that business? Maybe we'll do, I'm not going to tell you guys the idea. It'll be out on our YouTube, but we'll do something that'll make people realize they could get into it really quickly. And so it starts usually with a kernel of curiosity. And then I try to follow it down the path. And so that might be one we do inside of the business. But the next one, I don't really have an answer yet besides that thing that comes across your path that you think, I don't have time for that. But like one day I want to do that. It's probably the thing you should try to do now. I love that advice. And you mentioned curiosity there. And I think that's one of your superpowers after following you for two years. What is the spark of that curiosity? Where do you see in your own past how curiosity has helped you grow and, and build? I think most people get comfortable with a linear path. I'll take my husband, for instance, you know, former military guy. And he was sort of told, first you do this, then you do this, then you do this, and this is how you progress through the ranks. And because I've hip-hopped a lot through different careers, I never had a next step. And so I had to be innately curious to figure out where to go next. And so for humans that are out there listening or watching, I think that's part of the 
that's part of the magic is how can you figure out a way to profit from your curiosity and follow it in ways that don't seem so linear um, because I don't know very many interesting humans or really successful humans who have had an exact straight path I mean mm. I don't know why like Sean Purry's coming to mind and you know Sean owns like a baby clothing e-commerce company now and a top 10 podcast and then he was a tech company founder and then he ran this little VC and then he was really into Twitter and so it's a total fallacy in my opinion that people tell us that we have to follow you know one career path and so instead of that I think the easiest way is follow your curiosity find a way to profit from it and then um, keep following that curiosity I think that so much of life we view from the education system Mm -hmm. of like okay here are 12 grades you need to complete. And then after that, you go to college. And in the micro of that, it's like, all right, I got this test at the end of this week. And so I have to prepare and we have a final. But it feels like life from my limited perspective of five years being in the quote unquote real world is a lot different than that. And it it touches on exactly what you're talking about. So like, what do you think we could do to help people realize at a younger age that life is not as structured as school makes it seem like you know we have this friend who has a really big internet business and he you know makes five or six million dollars a year and he's 24 and um the internet business is about it he's like an influencer you could say that and i won't call him out on here but um you know he's obviously very good at that one thing but what i said to him because he kind of wants to get to the next level he wants to be on all the big podcasts and he wants the best-selling book and i kind of said hey man um before you go and get the accolades, like you have to do the interesting things. And so most people just think, well, if I get really big on social, by getting really big on social, then they'll let me in. They'll let me in the doors. And it's like, that's not actually how it works. Instead, I think a more interesting, real and authentic way and a way for you to stick around for a long time is to do interesting things. You know, I mean, if you take Joe Rogan, he... Uh, you know, was a comedian and took a bunch of hits and swings for that forever. He did that god-awful show Fear Factor for a long time, right? Then he went out and he really got into MMA and jiu-jitsu and he got his ass kicked. And then he became one of the best uh, at jiu-jitsu in his, in his realm. And so, you know, and now he's done that on multiple different topics and so he's stacked. So I think the best career advice would actually be go and try to become really good at a few things and go and try to take some really big risks like for you. I mean, one of these risks is you're doing this podcast and you know you go out and talk to all of these interesting people but i think layering on on top of that okay i have the podcast i'm talking to all these interesting people and then how could i break the barrier between just hearing what people have to say and doing it so you know if i met with cody this week and we talked about xyz next week i'm gonna go try to buy a business like a small one i'm gonna spend five or ten k and i'm gonna go actually try to do the thing Mm -hmm. and fail or not one way or the other but as opposed to all of us mentally masturbating and talking about it nonstop, go do the thing. So that's what I told told our friend. I was like, why don't you go and try to climb a mountain or mm. join the army for a year or do something that's a bit off the beaten path if you want to be where most people who are off the beaten path go. How do you find that thing, though, that you should do? You have to, I don't think you have to... You don't have to put on your tombstone, you know, (laughs) it could, it could simply be a sticky note on the mirror for a minute. And so, you know, how could you think about little tiny swings? And so I think about this for me, we have something we use in our content because I run a business. Well, a few of them have these (laughs) one, two, three. And so, you know, I, I have limited time to do content. So I try to be really efficient with it. And so we have a, I don't know, we have a, like a virality to difficulty matrix. And so we're like, wow, we think this idea could go really big and it could be huge. So it's a level 10 on the virality scale, but it's a level 10 on the difficulty scale, which would be like, let's buy out Toys R Us and give away all the toys to the kids in the U.S. Like That might be really viral, but it would also be hard to do. And so we're always looking for where could we have a level 8, 9, or 10 viral that also is a 4, 5, maybe 6 difficult. And so I think you could think about your life like that. If you go and do an Ironman, that puts you already in, let's say, the top 10% of people physically. Now, that's a pretty hard difficulty, but it's probably not a 10. Mm. It's probably like a 5 or 6 level, and it's a commitment of what? 4 to 6 months? You don't have to write it on your tombstone. And then simultaneously, you could say, I want to go buy a business. And then immediately people are like, oh my gosh, that's too much. Well, you don't have to spend a million dollars on a business. You could go on Flippa or you could go on Biz by Sell and you could buy a business, a newsletter business for five or 10K 
And then you could try to grow that for six months. And then that won't bankrupt you. You don't have to do it forever. But then you can say, okay, I've done an Ironman. I've bought and sold a business. And you can do that inside a four to six month period. And I think people stacking more of those little wins is more interesting than like, ah, the holy Mecca, I have to meet the Dalai Lama, right? Yeah, I I really like that approach. So it begs the question, though, what do you want on your tombstone? Mm. Um. The only thing that I can stick with on this is I love that I believe it was Hemingway that said, um, you know, at the end of my days, I want to show up at the pearly gates, like beaten, battered, bloody, basically crawling through, uh, having left it all on the table. And I'm paraphrasing because he said it more interesting. It is Hemingway after all. (laughs) But um, I like that idea. I don't want to show up put together. I don't want to show up with a lot of gas in the tank. I want to show up on empty. Mm. And so, um, you know, my husband and I, one of the ways that we stop fighting, um, because every couple seems to do that at some point, is we start to say to each other, too small. Too small. Like, we're not going to talk about that. Too small. And it's because we realized, man, we only have so many more breaths, and we literally, in the amount of breaths that we have, cannot do everything that we want to accomplish in this life. Like mm. it, It's physically impossible. I can't do everything I want to do. And so with that little piece of knowledge, am I going to left, let uh, you, I don't know, left the refrigerator door open, or you didn't pick up the kids today on time, or I'm mad at you for getting our, for forgetting our anniversary? Is mm. that worth the breath? Mm. And so that idea of too small, too small, I think can help a lot of people i like that it's a good way to think about the things that are just in your own life and you could just say it to yourself as well so like for you what other things do you say to yourself on a day-to-day basis that help you be the person you are Hmm. i just realized this with my team this week i don't know if you guys ever um if you guys ever feel like man i have too much to do i have too much going on i can't accomplish it all And so then you start to hire your first VA, or maybe you start to outsource some portion of the podcast editing, or you start to get a cleaning lady or something. And there's this moment that's really important where that person that you hire or hire to do some sort of service for you doesn't do it exactly like you want, right? Mm. Sure, everybody's had that moment. And what usually happens in that moment is that people then reinsert themselves. They go and they try to, they're just, ah, God, it's never mind, I'll handle it myself. No big deal. Okay, see you later. No problem. And uh, one of the things that I remind myself constantly is anytime I insert myself and take over a task, I am basically taking a step back from the big goals that I have. Mm-hmm. And so every time I'll say, don't insert, don't insert. Now, what I can do is say, hey, this didn't happen like I'd like it to. Uh, why? You know, what can we do different so that this doesn't happen next time? But I hold myself back from ever going in and trying to take over somebody else's tasks on my team. There's no way to manage as many businesses as I have if I have to go and try to do it all my way. And I think most people do not know how to delegate. And if you learn how to delegate, you're one, allowing somebody else a job, allowing somebody else to learn, allowing somebody else to take personal responsibility and ownership, but you're also allowing yourself to build something really big because you'll never be able to build something big by yourself. And the only way you can do it is by getting other humans around you, enabling them, and then having them buy into a vision a vision that's bigger than the ones that they have for themselves. Mm. What, what are some of the common mistakes you see when you you start delegating or you see people who you consult with, what are the mistakes that they make when delegating for the first time? Yeah, well, I, I just hired a new head of content. You, you know him, Joe. So I think <laughs> Joe was with me this weekend, so I don't think he'll care if I talk to him about this. He would say that he's not the best delegator. And it's a skill that he really wants to work on because he's very, very, um, he's very intelligent and competent and, and a great leader. And But one of the areas is he'll jump in and really overhelp somebody. And so um, the biggest thing that I've done for people in in my career or people like with Joe, I'll just say, um, you know, is that on your top five list? Mm. And for him, his top five list should really be for almost every leader. It should be hiring. It should be strategy. It should be like one or two big projects that need to get done that at least you have to frame out for yourself. And then it should be leading and and helping your team. Mm. And so nowhere in that top five as a leader did you hear me say, it's editing the stuff yourself. It's posting the stuff yourself. It's getting in the weeds. It's actually not what you should be doing as a leader typically. And so with him, I'll say, is that a top five activity? And he'll be like, fuck. (laughs) 
<laughs> top five activity, you know? And it'll be like, but we need to get it done. I'm like, hey, I get it. We need to get it done. And then you create the process and you hand it off to the next guy. And the last thing I'll say is the way to get people to consistently do the work is when they don't do something that you want them to do, any employee or person who works for you, the immediate response is that you feel pain from them not doing it, right? Like, Carl, this is supposed to be done. Why isn't it done? And instead of that, you should say, oh, Carl, this isn't done. What are you going to do about that? You have to redirect the pain because humans are a giant incentive machine based off carrots and sticks, carrots and sticks. And so if you take on the pain when something isn't done as opposed to pushing it to the person who should have done it, then they're never going to change because, you know, it's like a reaction with a knee. Your leg kicks when it gets hit, right? And if you don't allow them to feel a little bit of that, then they won't have the reaction. And so that's really important, I think, in leadership. What's the the moment you realize you should be delegating because it's like for me for this podcast you're talking about like the minutia of the editing the clips this and that. it's like i don't have a budget to help you know do all those things that i want and i don't know when's the right time obviously it's like when the money is at a certain point but it's like how do you go about figuring out that out as somebody who's two years in the podcast game and trying to figure out the long-term vision for it yeah um so a couple things one I think when you don't have the cash to outsource or delegate, that's a great time to ask yourself, does my business model work how I want it to work? Mm. And to actually take a step back. It's not, okay, I'll wait until I have enough money. It's how could the business model work right now in order to have everything that I want? And so I just launched a paid newsletter today for that reason. There you go. That's exactly right. So you should take a step back when you don't have enough money and say, okay, it's not actually... It's not actually that I don't have enough money yet. It's that I don't have the right business model in place. Because business models are layered. There's, I always use it, 10 for everything. So I think there's, you know, let's call it 10 levels to, to businesses. And not all businesses are created equal, right? Um, so businesses, some of them are really, really great at profitability once you hit product market fit. SaaS, royalties, licensing, right? And some of them are not so great, such as... Um, one-on-one consulting, mm. right? Like limited amount that you could ever do. And so that might be a one, level one game compared to a level 10 game. And so I think you have to really become a master of business models and figure out who, the easiest way to do this is to say, who is doing something similar to me that appears to have a lot of profit or money to utilize? And now I want to go and I want to dissect their business just like I would dissect a body, and I want to figure out, oh, the heart's there and the liver's there. And so given that that's how they structured it, I'm going to restructure mine the same way. And so I think you're doing it exactly right. Do you remember the first time that you stumbled across that idea of like, okay, there's a business that I'd like, and how do I go about breaking that down and figuring it out myself? I don't know about the first time, but um, you know, I've invested in Gosh, thousands and thousands of businesses by now. How so many? That's crazy. Well, I mean, it wasn't all by myself. I was at a lot of really big financial firms. So we would, as a team, do, you know, a hundred deals a year or something. And so I would get to see all of those deals and I would get to potentially participate in some aspect of them. And then I've done a lot of venture deals, which are smaller and you can do a lot more of them. And then I'd say I've bought, you know, let's call it a hundred plus businesses and sold, I don't know, 50 or 60 of them. And at varying levels, not all these are huge. Some of these are a couple hundred million bucks. Um, you know, some of them are a couple hundred thousand. And um, I think what you, what I found, if I remember the like some of the very first ones, it was when we would take a company public, right? So let's say you're working as an investment banker and a company wants to go out to the market and raise a bunch of capital by issuing stock publicly. Um, you would get to see inside of hundreds of pitch decks to figure out where to price a company. So after a time, I sort of became an expert at how do you value a company and why is one company valued more than another? And it's not just profit and it's not just total revenue. There's, it's actually a little bit of an amalgamation. So I think if you want to get good at understanding business models, investing is a great place to start because 
you can only get so many reps by starting your own businesses. Like how many businesses can somebody start in their life? But if you can just be behind the curtain saying, huh, like, yeah, I'm going to give a little bit of money here. I'm going to give a little bit of money there. But you get to steal their 10,000 hours by just analyzing businesses. So you could do this with K-1s in like by looking at hedge funds, like what do they invest in? What's a K-1? Uh, it's, a, it's a tax document, a report that basically comes out on um, – the holdings of financial institutions. So you can see what they're investing in. Typically, the stuff that hedge funds invest in are going to be profitable because they're trying to make money. And so you can figure out, huh, what are the what are the business models of those companies? And then you can also look at pitch decks for startups. I think that's a great place to look at it. You could look at all the companies inside of Y Combinator and who raised and at what amount. And then you'd quickly say, all right, my realm is podcasting. What is the highest ROI or return on income or return on my time that I could get for what type of activity with podcasting? And you might say, like, let's name every every sector that you touch has a ton of different ways you could go. You could have Danny Miranda, the podcast, and then you could own the studio, you know, the podcast studio for Danny Miranda. Mm-hmm. And then you could create a microphone that's specialty for podcasts. Or you could be like, God, I'm traveling all the time. I wish I had an immediate setup. So you could pop up like a setup, Right. Or you could have a paid newsletter. Or you could outsource your consulting ability for how to get great guests and say, I'm going to charge $5,000 in order to tell you how to get Cody Sanchez, because she's really great, <laughs> on your podcast. Right? So many people hit me up. They were like, how did you get Cody Sanchez as a guest? <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. So, like, so you, could, you could dissect all the things that you're doing every day. Oh, here's a template for how to drop your podcast in and auto frame it. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and so anything that you're doing, think about all the stuff that takes you amount of time and would other people pay for that? I feel like being with you, I'm getting smarter. <laughs> I like that. That's good. <laughs> and so how, how does one go about saying to themselves and thinking about that branch for let's say it's not podcasting let's say it's um uh, let's say they're a youtuber right like it what what do they go about what is your how do you tell somebody who's just in the beginning stages of their journey like what to focus on exactly yeah so I think there's five levels to monetization of online influencers. And I've thought about this a lot. Alex Ramosi and I kind of have gone back and forth on it. So I think level one is AdSense, right? You're just like, I'm going to take whatever TikTok or YouTube pays me uh, for putting my content out there. That's the worst way to monetize. It's the least return. Because if you think about it, I like to think about cap tables. Cap tables mean like all the names uh, that invest in a company. And how they are usually ranked is by size and preference. So like, let's say that I invested in Danny. If I invest in Danny, and I am one of the first investors, and I have a bunch of really good terms, and I have preferred stock or I have debt, I'm at the top of the cap table. I'm like the best spot to be as one of the investors in Danny. Whereas, you know, and that kind of like goes down lower and lower uh, with different types of, of terms you could have. And so when I look at... Uh, influencers, I think the worst type, the spot in the cap table where you're the lowest is when you're just doing ads. Anything related to like AdSense where you're in sort of, uh, you know, a more, you're at the mercy of what YouTube or Facebook or any of those platforms are going to do. Then second level is sponsorship. So that's like you go out and somebody sponsors you to do XYZ. Okay, that's fine, but those dry up pretty frequently. And um, the other person still is getting a higher ROI than you are because otherwise they wouldn't pay you. Mm -hmm. And then the third level to that is like proprietary products, like info products. So my courses, my masterminds, that might be a level three activity. So I'm taking in most of the value, right? But um, an info product degrades, meaning over time, like my course, unless I keep changing it and keep updating it, will be worth less in 10 years than it is now, right? Mm. Then the next level to that, in my mind, is like hard asset products. So like Kim Kardashian's beauty line, Mm. right? That doesn't degrade. Like those can continue to grow. Those have a really good return if you go and sell them. They sell for higher multiples, which just means uh, how much profit they do or revenue they do times whatever the purchase price is. And then the highest level, I think, is like investors, um, licensing, royalties, those SaaS, all of those types of businesses have the highest multiple that you can sell them for. And so when it comes to what should I do as a YouTuber, most people stay at level one, ads forever, then they do some sponsorships, and then maybe 
they do their own info products or they sell some merch. But very few people move past that to level four and five, actually. And so the goal should be you move all the way up. It's why Kim Kardashian released a private equity firm. firm, Because she realized, wait a second, I am schlepping out like beauty products all day and I've made a ton of money doing that. But those do not sell for the highest multiples. She's probably not well-connected enough, and her audience doesn't fit with a SaaS company. And so she says, huh, I'm going to play the investing game because I can turn around and sell that company for even more. And that's why her mom's a G, because she actually understands uh, she understands finance and ROI. So you basically realize this pyramid, and you said, I want to teach people how to invest. Is that correct? Totally. Take us back to that moment where you realized, all right, I want to show the world that investing is the path to create real wealth. Yeah. So my belief um, is that if you understand how to invest and how to make money and how to make your money make more money, uh, then you can get closer to financial freedom. And once you get to financial freedom, then you can get closer to physical freedom. Like I could go and film a podcast with Danny last minute at 12 because I want to. And then you could get closer to philosophical freedom, which is I'm going to think the way that I want to think, not out of fear, scarcity, or, you know, common narrative. So my real goal is, yeah, I'd love everybody to be rich, driving Lambos if they want. But what I'd really like people to do is hit the highest level of uh, freedom, which is an ability to think for yourself, to stop believing all of the noise that we're told every single day. So I use money as a Trojan horse. Everybody wants to hear how to make the next million bucks. Nobody wants to hear me tell them, think for yourself. Not that interesting, right? And so we, we, we kind of backdoor it. But the, the reason that I started this or the way was that in you know 2020, I realized, man, all this stuff in finance that we talk about is not actually that complex once you're in it, but to explain it to other people, we were just never taught. We weren't taught in school. Uh, we weren't taught in our finance classes. I got an MBA. It wasn't taught there. I got a PhD. It wasn't taught there. It wasn't until I went to Wall Street and I started investing in private equity myself that I learned sort of the cheat code. And so I think more people should learn this. And that's why we try to make it more accessible to everyone. What, what is the cheat code? The cheat code is that you have to speak the language of finance and, and money. And most people don't because, you know, money and finance is like, it's like healthcare. You know, they want you to not understand how insurance works and what all the terminology means and, you know, the correlation between mental health and food and, you know, working out. And they they don't want you to understand all of that. Why? Because we're incentivized as a medical, you know, uh, system today to treat illnesses. That's how we make the most money, right? We don't make money from preventative care. There's not a pill for that. And there's no way for you to go to the hospital and rack up tons of bills for you staying healthy early on. And it's the same with finance. We make money when other people hand us their money and let us deal with it. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that's the right way to be. And so um, our whole thing we talk about at Contrarian Thinking is how to invest and in a way that's kind of fun and accessible and doesn't overwhelm you. And then simultaneously, how can you speak the language of money? And a lot of gurus today, which I don't know if I consider myself a guru. But, <laughs> You're getting up there in follower uh, numbers. <laughs> oh well, I think a lot of them today, they tell you like a specific way. Like you should do Airbnb because I did Airbnb. Or you should flip houses because I did it. Or you should stock trade. I do not believe that. I think you have to understand terms and how to value things. And once you can understand terms and how to value things, you can pick the course that fits for you, Mm. whether it's real estate or stocks or whatever. That's what we teach. You learn the foundation, and then you can go apply it to whatever type of asset class you want to invest into. But if if people learn that, if you really learn how to be an investor, like you will never want for money again. Wow. That's a fascinating perspective. And I love how the whole thing is baked in with the idea of helping people question everything. And think critically. And I, I think Letters to a Young Contrarian by Christopher Hitchens is one of your favorite books of all time. Why is that the case? Uh, Christopher Hitchens is such an anomaly. I think young people today should really read him. And the reason why they should read him is because he's, he's, he doesn't fit the political narrative today. He doesn't fit the common narrative, right? You know, at one point he was a communist. At one point he was a socialist. At one point he was an atheist and actually you know, died an atheist, uh, then became a capitalist, then became sort of a, a believer in 
personal sovereignty and, and individual uh, property rights. And so um, what I like about Christopher Hitchens, if you read the book, it's like this big. It's very, very short. It's an easy, easy read. Um, but he pushed back against the common narrative in a time where um, to be an activist, which what, what is what he was, was really frowned upon. And so he was a he was what the people these days that say they're activists actually are. He really had no loyalty to any type of thought. He was simply trying to find the truth. And I think that's what real activists are. And so he was the inspiration for contrarian thinking um, because he was tied to no mantra. Activists these days, it's like, if you don't believe everything that's on this manifesto on the left, then I don't believe you. And if you don't believe everything on the right, then I don't want to associate with you. When we know that both sides have a ton of false narratives. And so I like Christopher Hitchens because he'll teach you to think for yourself. He will not teach you to just fit in. And I think a lot of the problem is to be an activist today, it really means that you're a conformist. And people confuse conformity with discipline. Uh, they think that because, no, I am going to take a stand and I stand up for the environment, I have the discipline to stand up for the environment. Mm. But what they really don't realize is they're just conforming to an ideology because everything the left believes on, let's say, the environment doesn't actually work. Mm. And so. That is why I would read that book. Um, and he, he's a beautiful writer, so it's entertaining, too. Mm. Well, in, in, that, in our first podcast, you mentioned how you're, the things you're good at or the things that you want to be known for is being a truth seeker and a storyteller. Mm. And you covered the first piece of that, of why going to the truth is so important to you with contrarian thinking and, and Christopher Hutchins. But why is storytelling so important to you? It's the way that we pass knowledge. Hmm. You know, when I think of, about it at the end of the day, the, the things that stand the test of time are typically not buildings we've built, cities we've named, um, products we've created. Those all sort of fade into memory. And yet, you can still hear the words of Napoleon, hmm. uh, and you can still carry the words from, you know, our forefathers. And so I think the pen uh, has proven to be mightier than the sword over the long term it's more lasting hmm. certainly i'd take a sword in, an, in a one-on-one -on -one fight but like over the long term it's it's pretty powerful and so you know our world today increasingly um is driven by those who can tell the right story and get their message really pushed out across the masses and and now you have to do it in a way that's faster and clickbaitier and and choppier but i do believe over time you know it's like 2015 everybody was coding and 2022 a lot of us are figuring out how to write or figuring out how to tell stories and that seems to be the last thing that at least the ai bots will take over <laughs> well you got gpt3 and and it's scary seeing for writers like that but like how has writing played a role in your life and how, how have you benefited personally from all the writing you've done? Every, you know, I, I kind of talk about to be a good investor and to understand making money. Um, one of the most important things you can do is learn how to question. The way that I learn how to question be best is first writing things down because in, in oral communication, you can have a lot of pauses and intonation and you can go on tangents and you can pull it back. But if you write it down, you realize the flaws in your logic and you can vary. You, you have to be more concise. Otherwise, nobody will read it. And so I think one of the best ways to think is to write first and synthesize your thoughts down to a very like the core essence of it. And once you can get one or two lines out of a complex thought, then expand on it. And usually people do the opposite. They pontificate loudly and long on a subject. Uh, and then maybe they try to take that and concise it down. But it's much more powerful if you can start from a place of a few truths. And, you know, if you think about this in, in the real world, who does an incredible job at expressing truth really succinctly? I think Naval Ravikant's a great example, right? And the reason so many people associate with him is because in one sentence, he can say something that most say in 50. Hmm. And that's a superpower in a world in which attention uh, is something we're all overwhelmed with. Mm. And so what practices would you suggest to get better as a writer? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, I think it'll be good for you doing the newsletter too. But if if you want to learn how to communicate and to have people follow you and to have people fall in love with you, 
the most important thing you can do is take time to yourself on a daily basis. And I like to do it in the morning, 20 or 30 minutes, and let your fingers fall on a keyboard and get out of your head the things that you're thinking. Hmm. And sort of I do that cathartically, almost like you would just, you know, you go, you wake up in the morning, you go to the bathroom and you pee and you don't think about it, right? So you just sit down and you write and you don't think about it. And then after doing that for a few moments, I look at what I've written and I try to be a little bit more thoughtful. Can I organize something here? Is there a point that I want to think about a little bit more? And that idea of taking your free-flowing ideas and synthesizing them into something really coherent or something really, really simple um, will help you, I think, for the remainder of the day in the way that meditation helps a lot of people. You're telling your brain, okay, I'm going to let you fly for a minute, but now we're going to simplify again and we're going to get to more structure in what we say. And so a lot of people do journaling. Um, This is my method for doing it. I think too many people try to structure their journaling in the morning. And really, you have to like let your mind run a little bit. And then you can fish out some of the truth from that craziness. Hmm. And on that topic, you mentioned about how or you I saw your schedule. And it was like, no meetings before noon. And I thought that was such a fascinating practice. It when did you get the idea to do that? And how has that impacted you and helped you? Yeah, I actually started. So let's see. I was an employee. And I felt like I had no time to do work. I was always in meetings and couldn't get anything done. And I wanted to try an experiment of could I not have meetings before 10am and do the work that I really needed to get done prior to 10am. And I don't know about you, but everybody told me, you can't do that. It's impossible. You're an employee. You can't. I think I was working at Goldman at the time. So it was a long time ago. And what I quickly realized is, oh, my gosh, when I have this, you know, at the time I would work very early. So let's say from 630 to 10, uninterrupted time, no meetings. I wasn't checking emails. Uh, I was able to get done almost my entire workday in that first period of time because I was the architect of my day as opposed to letting somebody else build it for me. And that practice has now consisted for most of my career. And when I first started as an employee, I did it two days a week. Now I do it three days a week and until 12 as opposed to 10. But anybody who tells you that you cannot control your own schedule I think you should, you don't always, you can't tell your boss, ah, fuck you, I'm going to do it anyway. But you could say, okay, great, that sounds good. And then just make up a different reason why you can't have calls those days. Because at the end of the day, you should be paid for your output. You should not be paid for your activity. Mm. And so um, if you are a great employee and you get done the things that you need to get done, time blocking should be a huge tool. I love that. So you mentioned working at Goldman, and I know that a key part of your journey was you were burned out at some point. What advice would you have for somebody who is feeling burnout of some sort right now, but they have kind of been lying to themselves or putting it off? How do you take that step to to change your world when you feel like overwhelmed in so many ways? When you're feeling burned out, you need to ask yourself one question, in my opinion. And that question is, Am I feeling burned out because this is the thing that I should not be doing with my life? Hmm. In which case, I should immediately do everything humanly possible to change what I'm doing. Or two, am I burned out because the way I'm doing the thing that I really want to be doing is not sustainable? And if that's the question, then it's just a method. It's just a manner of tactics. And so that's the change that I think most people don't do. There's plenty of people who are sitting burned out in something because it sucks the life from them to be doing it. And if that's the case, then you should immediately say, I'm going to carve out two hours per day to figure out how to change my career, how to change my job, how to change my daily activity. And if it's that you're doing something you want to do, but you're burned out, it's because you need to immediately spend an hour or two hours a day figuring out how do I do this in a different way so that I have enough energy to play the long-term game. Because that's what we want to do. Long-term games with long-term people. And the only way we can do that is if we stay engaged. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I think about our business, I think I started contrarian thinking after I had, quote-unquote, financial freedom. And I did it because I thought, I want to play this game for 30 years. Like, do I want to be doing TikToks for 30 years? Probably not. Spoiler. <laughs> but, uh, but I do want to play this game of content and attention. And so how can I do it in a way in which I'm really going to be able to, to, to run the marathon? Because it kind of defeats the purpose if I'm incredible at it for a year and then flame out. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the content and you have been incredible at it. You've 
dominated completely. And it's like so funny how I'll have friends who will be like, oh, I like Cody Sanchez. I'm like, oh, you check our podcast out? Like, no, like I, I just like her TikTok video. Like that happens. That happened two or three times separately. I was like, oh, my God, this woman's really taking over. So like what was the decision you said, okay, I'm going to take over TikTok or I'm going to win the attention game to the best of my abilities? And what did you, what were the first steps you took to make that a reality? First, I think, is to treat content like a business. Mm. This is the way for our generation to create wealth for those who like telling stories and for those who are interested in attention arbitrage. Mm. I think, you know, throughout history, and I've talked about this for a while, there's there's four types of leverage, and Naval talks about this too. There was originally, um, the first type of leverage was employees, or even go back before that, slaves, right? That was labor. The second type of uh, leverage was capital, that was money, like when the banks were created, that's when the Rothschilds actually came to their massive wealth, the, the Rockefellers, the, the Vanderbilts. Um, the third was code, which is how we got the next wave of billionaires, right? Musk and Gates and um, Bezos. And then the fourth is audience. And so we're in this phase in which audience is the most precious thing we have. Each form of leverage that stair steps is because it is the most precious commodity. Back in the beginning, labor was precious. You, you counted your, your power from the number of serfs you had as a king, right? And, and capital was the same thing. Money was limited and banks were limited. So those who could get the most leverage, like oil and um, you know trains they needed a massive amount of capital to work and so that was the most precious and then code it was like you there's no coincidence that most of the people who became billionaires had early access to computers right and the ability to learn this and now audience and audience is the most democrat uh, democratized meaning easily available for everybody um, form of this and so the first thing that you should do is realize that we are in this fourth wave mm. And so if you realize that, then you should treat creating content like a business. And that's when it changed for me. Originally, I did it as a hobby because I love it. I love writing. I love storytelling. But then one day, my mindset switched and I realized, wow, uh, I've raised a lot of capital in my day, billions and billions of dollars. I've invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, and that's really powerful. But what if I pair that ability with audience? And then I think it will skyrocket. And so that's when I said, okay, I'm going to create a PL. I'm going to figure out how to get revenue out of this business. I'm going to research all the people who are doing it right right now. I'm going to copy their best practices. And I'm going to start making some smart hires as soon as I can figure out how to make money. Mm. And that's typically how you do it in any enterprise. So it might be different now versus when you first started. But who are the people who you look to and you're like, that person is doing content right in the present day moment? Depends on the sector. But when I look at who is going to be a billionaire based off content, we already have some models, right? We have the Kardashians. That's one particular model. And they really did it with a very unsophisticated business model. Um, makeup, you know, uh, they did it with, um, you know, clothing. They did it with ads and sponsorships. So they didn't even go to the fifth level of content creation monetization. So I think they're a great example. I think you also have um, people like Shaq, for instance, who Shaq leveraged his notoriety even before the internet was really big, or you could have social media platforms, in order to invest in all these boring businesses, which we know I'm obsessed with, and get really what's called a creative value, which means when you put a bunch of stuff together, that the whole is worth more than the sum of its parts, right? So if you have one car wash, it's worth X. If you have five car washes, you would say, oh, it's worth five times one. But the answer is actually it's worth 10 times one because you put them all together and it's more valuable as it grows. And so he understood that. And then he leveraged that into becoming a DJ to stay relevant. And then he leveraged that into a really big TikTok where he's kind of funny to be more relevant. So I think he's done an incredible job. And the key thread, I think, from all of this is realizing that the smartest attention grabbers um, are actually highly sophisticated. Like Shaq is a very smart business person who plays at joking on the internet, you know? And then, you know, the one that fascinates me that not enough people talk about is The Rock. If you look at The Rock's Instagram feed right now, and I like The Rock, so no shame in his game. If you look at The Rock's Instagram feed, every single post of his is an ad. I mean, 
every one of them. It's for Black Adam. It, you know, it's for his movies. It's for his tequila. It's for his you know new WWE project. It's for his NFL enterprise. Mm. And yet his engagement is sky high. Why? Because he's figured out how to get people to buy in to himself and his products as entertainment, mm. not just as advertisement. And in the future, I think the businesses that will really, really win are the ones that model themselves after somebody like The Rock, where he can say, The Rock's thing that he says all the time is like, this place has mana, right? Like, which is a Hawaiian word for like feeling, ethos, soul. And so he names, what does he name as tequila brand, which is the opposite of something with soul. He names it Terramana, right? Like from the earth, soul. And he has turned something, alcohol, which is categorically not good for you, right? Does anybody feel like they need another tequila brand? Like there are so many on shelves. Nobody feels like that. And yet he has turned this into something that's like, yeah, I'm with the rock. I have soul tequila, right? Brilliant. Uh, although, you know, maybe we could do it with things that are a little bit better for society too. <laughs> something I love about the rock in particular is just how engaging he is with other people. I remember him, he shouted out Polina Marinova Pompliano for her newsletter. And it's like, he's paying attention at a deep, deep level that very few people in his position really should be. And it's pretty remarkable. But I'm curious from your perspective, you just named Kim Kardashian, Shaq and The Rock. And so is that something you aspire to be to get to that level of fame or to get to that level of attention yourself? Uh, at your current venture it's not like you need the money it's not like you need the attention but you could influence people so like is that something you're you're thinking about it's an interesting question i've never really thought sought out celebrity it doesn't super interest me to be famous what i do think is very interesting is that fame is like money it's a tool right money has a lot of downsides fame has a lot of downsides i would say money actually has less downsides than fame because uh, not everybody has to know you have it. Uh, it doesn't restrict you in a lot of ways. Attention comes with some negative side effects. Um, and yet, I think in this day and age, if you have sort of a mission to life, which, you know, one of my missions, and as egotistical as it may sound, is that I really believe that I might be able to help people achieve more freedom in their lives. And that's what it boils down to. I want more humans to be free. I think we have progressed so far from the shackles of like constant starvation and death that we should not be so willingly giving up our freedoms today. And I think we're doing it left and right. And so if I think, man, maybe I could have a small impact on that, then it's sort of my moral prerogative, meaning like it's the thing that I should do more than anything else to get that word out. And so then everything just becomes a tool. Okay. Mm. The more people I have that pay attention to me, the more I can achieve this mission. And so maybe that would be useful. Um, that said, I think some of the more interesting content creators today are, to your point, almost business professionals that have gotten into the game. And we're starting to see a mixing of lines, right? Where everybody is sort of like, oh, God, celebrities launched another alcohol company. Don't care. You know, but your favorite podcaster might now launch some event and people would be really into that. And so I think we're blurring the lines between it used to, there really was a fine line. It was Hollywood celebrities. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, whatever you fuckers are doing on the internet, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And I think that's going away. Yeah. Because I watch more YouTube than I watch Netflix for sure. And I'm the older generation of that. The people underneath us, I think TV by and large will be a thing of the past. And things like YouTube and constant Netflix and constant streaming services will be sort of the future of, of movies. Mm. And the future of content and technology in general. So like you mentioned audience as the fourth pillar. I'm curious, like, where does it go from here? I mean, I don't know if people could have predicted when we were in the era of code, that audience would be the next thing, right? That would have been a kind of a difficult prediction to make. But standing where we're at right now, in terms of audience being the fourth pillar, it can't just be audience. Audience is probably going to become abundant, similar to how code has become abundant, similar to how energy has become abundant. So like, where where is it going? It's a great question. I don't have a great answer. I think um, my gut reaction is the first wave of audience sort of comes with your immediate sphere. And the next one might be how do we get attention in ways we can't even imagine today? Mm -hmm. And that might not be code, but it might even be, go back to 
software and hardware? Like, you know, will we have implanted devices that will have our attention in a way that right now we'd rely on algorithms? Perhaps instead it'll be something, you know, internally based. What if we could take back the ability from platforms to tell us what to read and watch next? We could actually determine that ourselves. Could that be? Um, so I think some of it will go that way. And then I, I do think somewhere in there, and I don't know the next one entirely, is up until this point, you know, the human lifespan has been really limited. It's mm. been finite. And we've been increasing it, but we've sort of plateaued there in a lot of ways. And so maybe it's not just attention at this point. It's can we have longevity? You know, so can we live for longer and can we capture more of the attention from that? And then more than attention, it might just be like right now on YouTube, for instance, there's no difference between, I don't know, maybe my attention, which from a socioeconomic standpoint, I just have more dollars to put behind things. And like my cousins who's 17 and has 50 bucks to his name, right? And so might it also be um, the level of attention or a value of the attention. Mm. And I think as we get more and more into people being able to understand, you know, things behind the privacy wall, that could be really interesting. Well, contrarian thinking is in a great place as a newsletter to have the increased attention of the world. So with if that increased attention is also increased in value. So seems like you're preparing yourself well. And I think we're coming up on time here. And I just want to take a moment to appreciate you and, and to really thank you for doing this on short notice. And um, I'd love to end this with a challenge for people because I feel like a challenge is the best way to get to know what you really value and what you want people to value as well. So what challenge could you leave the audience with? I think if you had to do one thing, it would be where can you cross the barrier? So if you've decided to give Danny and I an hour of your time, and that's incredibly valuable, and now you've listened to us give you some ideas over the course of an hour, where could you cross the barrier from just listening to actually taking action? And every time you listen to something, could you do something about the listening? I think that's what's missing from a lot of the YouTube videos and the podcasts is we stand behind this barrier of audience versus listened to. Mm. Um, And so I suppose today, take one of these ideas and do something with it, whether it's that you take a step towards launching a newsletter, whether it's that you take a step towards figuring out a business model that you might do, whether it's you Google what a K1 is and figure out how to read those and look at those on a weekly basis. Um, cross the barrier. Because when you cross the barrier, which is a word in content that means you know like not a talking head but out in the street shaking hands, when you cross that barrier – instantly sort of things change and you're in the real world. And so that would be what I would push upon you today. Go go take a piece of action and cross the barrier. I love it. Thank you so much, Cody. Where can we send people to connect with you further? ContrarianThinking.co is probably the name of the game. And then I'm Cody Sanchez on all the socials. Awesome. Linked below. Thank you so much, Cody. My pleasure.